Thank you, Brad. One of the things that Brad mentioned is this idea of constantly being in need. And that song, In Need, has been running through my head for, for that same reason. And as I look at this and as we study Romans and really the argument that Paul is building up to is that need and that constant need. It doesn't feel great to be in constant need. Thankfully, we have a generous God. And that's really what, what Paul is trying to outline. As we looked in chapter 3, he's building up to this idea. He talked about um, the, the sin of the Gentiles, the sin of the Jew. And we kind of reached this, uh, this pinnacle statement there in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the argument that he's been making and that he'll continue to give examples for as we look tonight. God publicly displayed Him at His death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, more in detail in chapter 4. God publicly displayed him accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. This was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. So I want you to consider for a moment just the the concept of law, the right and wrong, right? Like we... One of the, in the garden all the way back, what was the issue? If you eat of this fruit, what would happen? You surely die. And you would have the knowledge of good and evil, the right and wrong, this concept of law. Why was that a bad thing? And as you start to to dig into that, what the law does is it just tells you how wrong you are. In fact, a lot of times law comes about because of lawlessness. We're going to kind of look at that a little bit uh, tonight as well. So consider the idea for, for law. Like we have laws in this country and they're enforced by authority, by power, right? Laws kind of arise Uh, out of authority and out of hierarchy. You can kind of see this in ecological systems. What is an apex predator, right? You think uh, an apex predator means that they sit at the top of the food chain. And so what's the law of the jungle? Whatever they want, because there's there's nothing that has power over them. So if you think about this situation where you get to the top of that authority chain, How does the law apply to someone that has nothing or anyone to answer to? We're going to kind of look at that a little bit tonight. And I want to to ask a couple of very, maybe even rhetorical questions. We're talking about Jews and Gentiles. Paul is working up to an argument uh, that we've already looked at, that all have sinned, all have fallen short, and all need Jesus Christ. What was the main division, if you will, between the Jews and the Gentiles? Circumcision, Circumcision, which is, yes, circumcision, which is, uh, how, how can I put this? What is it a symbol of? The law, right? It is, it is the symbol of the law. So you had this group. So ultimately, they were mad because, not mad, but they felt a separation, if you will, because 
We were God's chosen people. We were given the law, that kind of thing. They were not, so they don't get to play, right? They're not a part of this party. In fact, as we'll look later, even the proselytes weren't allowed to call Abraham father, right? And we'll look at that a little bit. So even, even if you adopted that, that religion and you, you became a Jew, you still were a little different. Um, so we see this division uh, between them. Um, and so, in a sense, Paul is trying to work up to this argument uh, to satisfy or unify both sides. So let's look at 27 uh, down through the end of chapter 3. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what principle? Of works? No, but by the principle of faith. For we consider that a person is declared righteous by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not God of the Gentiles too? Yes, he is. Obviously, they knew that. They knew that he was the God of every created thing. Yes, the Gentiles too. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So let's stop there for a a moment. He asked the question, where then is boasting? Why, Why do we brag? We've done something we're proud of. What does that get us? I mean, I mean, like, why are we bragging? We're not bragging to ourselves. I mean, maybe sometimes we, we do that. But what is the real purpose behind bragging? I go to my friends, I did this thing, right? Like, that was pretty cool. What am, what am I expecting in return out of that bragging? Praise. Praise. Power. Status, whatever you want, right? Like it's meant to elevate, and it's a symbol of this internal pride. And so he asks, Where then is boasting? What would I gain from boasting about my works in the law? What would it benefit me? I am the best lawkeeper that there is. Okay, so I keep climbing that that status of law keeping and what what am i seeking then i'm seeking that hierarchy that authority that uh position so we see right in the off this idea that i'm going for something other than just keeping the law i think the jews really thought that the law was part of their salvation or was their salvation so they were boasting almost to god it's like i've kept the law now you owe me Very good. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, even to God, which is even worse in that situation, right? Like I have, this is a transaction and I have paid my part. Thus you owe me something. That's, I mean, consider saying that God, you owe me this, right? And it so shows the total misalignment. Complete misunderstanding of what the law was meant to do. And so Paul is answering this question. Why then is there boasting? Because some people might go, I have lived up to the law. Now, was that actually true? Did people actually live up to the law? No. Um, 
Okay, so where then is boasting? It is excluded, unnecessary. By what principle of works? No, because the principles of faith. Philosophically, you only get one chance to keep the law. Why? Because the moment that you break it, you're done. I love playing video games. And some video games are a lot harder than others. And every now and then you get to the spot and you're like, I'm going to try to do this perfectly. Never. I can never do it. I'm really thankful for extra lives and that kind of thing. But you see, you catch my meaning. There is just, there's no way uh, to do that. You only get one chance. One chance to keep the law perfectly. So there's this philosophical level of the, the keeping of law in that I might feel justified in going, God, you owe me because 99.99999% of the time I've kept your law. And Paul's making the argument that just doesn't work. Because the moment that you break it, it's broken. So what is, the, uh, what is the purpose of boasting in the law? Where is the gain? God did not need our help in extending salvation. Uh, and, and so that's kind of what we're, what we're working up to then. So we have this distinction between Jews and Gentiles based on the law. And the Jews kind of have this mental, mental separation because of circumcision, because uh, of being God's chosen people. Um, And so Paul is trying to make the argument uh, that both Jews and Gentiles have the same access to God on the same basis, which which is what we're going to get into tonight. And this is really the only way to get equality uh, is through faith. So um, do we nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. Um, Some have suggested, I mean, Paul, I believe, he even mentions the fact that he was kind of accused of, of uh, bringing lawlessness, right? And this is kind of an answer to that. Uh, probably accused of preaching, preaching lawlessness, but he answers this here. He's not trying to do away with the law. He's pointing out that people um, that really respect the law can't fully keep the law. They can't fully obey the law. Okay. Um, So is, philosophically, the Jews might be looking at this like, is God breaking the rules by changing the rules, right? And that's kind of what Paul is trying to answer here, uh, because is God really changing the rules here? Paul's like, no, God's not changing the rules. You guys have been so focused on the law itself that you've missed the law giver. And that's kind of what we're talking about tonight. So let's get into chapter 4. We're going to read... Uh, verses 1 through 8. And Paul is going to give a really solid example of, uh, of salvation through faith. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm going to derail this one, Jesse. No. Before we get on to chapter 4, um, I wanted to point out something from uh, verse 26 in chapter 3. Um, I really like this verse about how God displayed Jesus so that he would uh, demonstrate his righteousness and that he would be just before Jesus came along, those two um, those two positions were mutually exclusive for God. He could he could be just and condemn us, or he could be the justifier and say that we're okay, but then he wouldn't be just. But you can see in Jesus how he's able to do both of those things. And that up until that point, there might have been some question about how just God really was, because he he told people in the Old Testament that he forgave them. You see mm-hmm. Psalm 32, mm-hmm. you see uh, David 
with Bathsheba. Um, you know, you read in like Hebrews about how the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. Um, so we didn't really see what the means was for that forgiveness um, up until Jesus. So my question was, for the Jews living under the Old Covenant, were they supposed to get this? Like, understand that the Old Testament sacrificial system was just a model. Because I think a lot of them didn't. And they thought it was just going to be the thing. And so, you know, as they move in and you see Jesus coming to be the fulfillment of that, some of them see that as, you know, turning their faith upside down and they reject it. Um, but if they think that this is going to be the end all be all, it's not just a foreshadowing of the true sacrifice, then I can understand how some of them have trouble accepting that. So, were we supposed to understand that, or do we just have to wait for these shows? Uh, it's a really great question, and I think Paul is actually going to start to address, even in, you know, one of the questions I asked was about really thinking of faith as a New Testament thing, <laughs> you know, but, but Paul goes on to say, no, this is, this is the way it's been, and I think you're right, I think you're touching on something that, that I'm, maybe I'm articulating poorly, just in the sense that when I focus on the law and not the law giver, I start to lose sight and am blinded to the larger picture of what that law represents. We're going to talk about this a little bit, and I'll introduce the concept by the phrase, people will do what you measure. Think about that for a second. People will do what you measure. When you tell them, I'm going to measure this thing, they rush to do that thing. And I think that has implications as to why maybe the law became this focal point uh, of their salvation. So I, th I think that's very good. And I probably won't answer it right now, but I do plan on kind of addressing that concept. Like I always, I look at, I look at like the Pharisees in the New Testament and the Jews and I think, man, how did they get to that point? And then I find myself very quickly getting to that point in my own life where I see something that is measured to my gain and I immediately start trying to do it in the most, the easiest, most efficient way possible. Sometimes that's not a bad thing, but when that easiest, most efficient way possible usurps the original intent of that measurement, like the law, that's when things get pretty bad. And I think that that's, that's what we end up seeing here. Um, so very good. So the, uh, I also like that imagery uh, there in 26 that you had kind of pointed out, publicly displaying him like, this is it. This is the physical manifestation of the mercy seat that is meant to appease right your wrongdoing in my eyes. Very good. Um, can I get a volunteer to read verses 1 through 8 in chapter 4? Someone to read 1 through 8 in chapter 4. Tommy, would you be willing to read 1 through 8 in uh, Romans 4? What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, has failed? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has a boast, or reason to boast, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed in God, and it was reckoned or accounted to him for righteousness. But to the one who works, the reward is not accounted according to grace or favor, but according to debt. But to the one who does not work, but believes upon the one who justifies the ungodly. 
His faith is accounted and reckoned as righteousness. Even also David speaks of the blessedness of the man who God reckons righteousness apart from works. Saying, blessed is blessed are those whose sins are forgiven, whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not reckon or account sin. Thank you very much. So we, we see Paul giving this example of Abraham as an example of redemption or salvation by faith. And if you what right, we've been building this argument because if both Jews and Gentiles are in need, and, and how do we kind of achieve equality spiritually, we have to do it not on the basis of works, but we've got to do it on the basis of faith. And so how can I convince the Jews... <laughs> of this redemption or this salvation by faith. So question uh, number two, um, why do you think it was necessary for Paul to use Abraham as a justification by faith? What's the significance there? There's, there's a couple of, couple of facets to this. We have a... He was very good, right? Uh, and, and we certainly have, we have writings about him. Abraham was considered righteous. He was considered the father of the Jewish nation. I mean, when it comes to an example of, uh, an example with some weight behind it, Abraham would be uh, one of those weightier examples. Um, I had read uh, uh, in some commentaries where this concept of Abraham kept the Torah before there was the Torah, right? Like he was looked at as this law keeper before the law was given. So he was this righteous individual out of the law, outside of the law. And so if I can convince people, uh, or at least the Jews, who are children of Abraham, that this is the way that God is wanting to look at people, this is a very strong argument. Um, Paul shows that his righteousness didn't come from law-keeping per se. What was accounted to him for righteousness? It was his trust that was accounted uh, to him with righteousness. I think that's from Genesis uh, 15. In verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord credited it as righteousness. Um, and I'm trying to remember, um, if you recall, does anybody remember what was happening in Genesis 15? When God, when, when this, this statement was made about Abraham? Right, right. He was worried that he wasn't going to, it wasn't like, Abraham wasn't like doing anything <laughs> about this, right? This wasn't, it was simply the fact that he trusted uh, God. Abraham believed the Lord. God said, no, I will give you an heir. And so God looked at him as righteous. Why? Because, because he trusted him, because he believed him. And that's why God considered him uh, or accounted that trust as righteousness uh, to him. And then we kind of get into this sense where Chris, you had mentioned this idea of the Jews really feeling owed by God. Like, I've done 
the checklist for my salvation, right? Like I've done all those qualifications, therefore you owe me this. Uh, Now to the one who works, his pay is not credited due to grace, but out of obligation. This idea that I'm obligated to be saved, or God, God is obligated to save me. Uh, because of the works that I've done. That's a very easy trap to fall into, right? Why? What, what do you think is behind that? What is it in us that, that feels like, um, it, at least spiritually, I'm going to get what's owed me? And then I can manipulate it, right? right. Yeah. You can be competitive against your brothers and sisters, but in reality, it's based on works. You're actually competing against the work of Jesus. I, I really like that the, the two kingdoms, I, and I think that really summarizes that in my in my mind so much. Like we're so used to this physical realm where things are measurable and 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 in competition and manipulation occurs and that kind of thing. And so, I mean, look at the Pharisees. It was this idea that we are the masters of the law, so we are at the top of that food chain, and like that's what they were going for. What is that? It's a very basic sin of the natural man is that pride uh right and and so um think now that like you can kind of connect it you see all of these things that spawn from this concept of pride like we say pride like it's just this selfishness or this but it's such a deep principle and it spawns out to the fact that i now have a nation who thinks that they're doing completely right and is totally misinformed right like and they were interacting with God on a daily basis and yet still found a way to let their pride intervene in that process. Very good. Um, Oh, yeah. Yes. I, the law that they were doing was they were justifying themselves mm-hmm. and repentance is this you know, turning back to God, change one's mind, lifestyle, things like that. And for all people that needed to hear that, that was them first. It was yeah. promised to them first anyway, but they had it wrong. Yeah. Uh, very good. And that repentance on a deeper level, talking about in Jesus, I have come to save the lost sheep of Israel. In that sense, I'm, I've got to remind them what this was about. And that's a really good segue into this, into this, uh, this next concept. This shows that, uh, you know, why did Paul use Abraham? This shows that God was operating with plans, specifically here for the Jews, outside of the giving of the law. Right? There was plans and plans and plans before the law arrived on the scene. 
And for me, this kind of underscores why elevating the concept of the Mosaic law above the lawgiver is such a dangerous notion, right? Uh, and, and once again, I can see that in myself. One of the verses, or one of the passages, and, and Jesus will quote Isaiah here uh, in, in just a bit, and then I think of Isaiah 66, um, where it says, This is what the Lord says, The heavens are my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is the house that you will build for me? Where is the place where I, where I will rest? My hand made them. This is how they came to be, says the Lord. Um, I show special favor to the humble and to the contrite who respect what I have to say. Law versus lawgiver. Because verses 3, the one who slaughters a bull also strikes down a man. The one who sacrifices a lamb also breaks a dog's neck. The one who presents an offering includes pig's blood with it. This concept that you have missed the lawgiver. You're only seeing the law. And we see that that's kind of a, uh, an extension of pride, if you will, uh, in the natural man. Uh, Matthew 22, or 23. Let's see here. Woe to you experts in the law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You give a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, yet you neglect what is more important in the law, justice mercy and faithfulness you should have done these things without neglecting the others and then in mark 7 in verses 6 i i won't read this but this is where uh jesus said isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites the people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me is where worship becomes vain Right, and, and it's this, this miscalibration, if you will. Okay, so we see that Paul says that um, Abraham was justified by faith. I asked the question, like a sub-question, why does James say that Abraham was justified by works then in James 2 and 21? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. Not by works, not to be justified, but because 
They have faith that that's what God told them. Very good. Yep. So faith is always good. Very good. Yes, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna elaborate on that in just a, a moment, Josh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took his faith to bring him to that point. And that's the emphasis both here and in James. Even Hebrews talks about him receiving his son back from the dead in a figure. Because he he was essentially dead. He was. Yeah, yeah. Very good, yeah. So this ties in a lot of things together. The previous verse, though, but are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow that faith without works is useless? So in one sense, it may be a rhetorical type question. You know, you're welcome Abraham justified by works, and then he goes on to say that point two, that it was faith working. That's what justified. And I think that's pointing out an example of uh, Romans 331. Uh, on contrary, we establish the law. Faith yes. establishes yes. it. Makes it what it's supposed to be. It makes it work. It is that's how the law worked. It should have been faith causing those works, not trying to do all those works. It in reverse. So it's almost a backwards it, type of thing. It is right because what we're talking about is we're we're talking about. <coughs> What the law, the Mosaical law, the platform for that, the foundation for that was faith. And right, like if, if, I'm, if I'm arguing up here about law and no law, and like, well, look down here. The, it's faith that underpins everything. So when you're looking in James you, and you continue to read, James quotes this same verse, right, from Genesis 15. Well, at that time, right, remember, it was, he was worried like what, whether or not he was going to get an heir or something like that. And then he turns around and quotes this from Genesis chapter 22 when he did have to do something. And as Josh pointed out, he was essentially dead, right, because he was willing. And what this made me think of, uh, well, a couple of things. Brad, your analogy about like getting on the bike or getting in the basket of a bike that's about to cross the ground. It was like really good. I'm going to steal it and rebrand it like crazy. But like it, it I think we're, what we're seeing here is this faith can maybe sometimes take on a really superficial kind of concept. But here we're talking about the faith that is willing to act or work to kill your son, to kill your heir. I mean, that's incredible. And so there's this idea uh, I, I think about when Jesus is trying to convince Nicodemus of being born again, and he's like, you see the wind blows where it will, uh, and you hear the sound it makes. You, don't, you can't see wind, but what can you observe? It's a fact, right? And the power is the wind, not, not the shaking of the leaves. In that same way, the faith is the wind, and the behavior that it manifests is what we observe, what we see. Did we, did we have a, yeah? When you see a couple of writers like Paul and James um, referring to the same character, the same person, and using these words in a different way, then I think we always have to look at how are they 
those words. Mm -hmm. are, are Paul, is Paul in Romans 4 in context defining faith and works in the same way that James right, right. in James 2? Mm -hmm. Remember what you were just saying? Yeah. But like in Romans 4, I think there are a couple of good indications of exactly what he means. Like in Romans 4, verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes. He's contrasting faith and works. The one who does not work, but believes. Well, what does he believe in? He believes in him who justifies mm -hmm. the ungodly. Mm -hmm. He believes in God. He trusts God for forgiveness. He says the same thing in verses 6 through 8. In verses 6 through 8, he, he says David is speaking of the blessing of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then quotes Psalm 32, 22 about sins being forgiven, covered, and not counted against us. When Paul is talking about salvation by faith, he's talking about people who trust in God who is merciful and forgives. Paul would have still said, as he does at the beginning of Romans and the end, that you have to go back. Right. Romans 1 5, right. Romans 16 26. James is defining a faith as an acknowledgement that something is true, whether or not one acts on it. The demons in James mm -hmm. 2 19 believe that God is one, but they don't act upon it. And, and Abraham was not only believing it was true, but basing his life on it. Right, I right. Think they're ultimately teaching the same thing, but it confuses people because they define it Absolutely, and I like the way that you put that because I, I think they could have been confused then too, right? And that, that's one of the reasons why James had to address this. Well, you're looking at faith and works as two distinct things. They build on top of one another, right? If I'm just looking at works as this uh, channel to which God owes me salvation, that's not by faith, Right, and these things are, are complementary con concepts, deeply woven together, um, and, and so I, I do think, Tommy, there can be some, um, certainly some misunderstanding of these two concepts. In both, I feel like the, the writers are really trying to get them to be a single concept of what work driven by faith, how that's different from work being driven by obligation. Or, or, or a transaction. Yeah, I told you every time I said that. I, when I grew up, the way I was explaining it, the way I understood this was James was saying, you need one part faith, one part work. Right. And then it's, it hit me, it's like, wait, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. He's actually saying, if you don't have works, you don't even really have faith. Right. Not real faith. And you can see this in verse 14. So what good is it, my brothers and sisters? If someone says they have faith, it's not very good to say if they claim Very good. Yes, all really good comments. And so as we as we look back at Romans four and Paul kind of talks about this um, uh, th this example of Abraham being an example of faith and his faith was credited to Abraham as righteous. 
Um, how was it credited to, to him? Was he circumcised at the time or not? No, he wasn't circumcised. Once again, the law wasn't given at this time, and he was a righteous individual. Yeah, I had another comment. Very good. I appreciate that. And, and um, I, I, Luke, you had mentioned like one part faith, one part works. I, I Like in my mind growing up, they were all kind of distinct. And you see them start to intermingle. And you start to, then, then you go back and you look at examples like building the ark, right? Like, well, I could have built it just to save myself, right? But, but that, that combination of trusting God to the point where I'm building this thing and I've never really even seen rain before, like, or the fact that God said I was going to have an heir, right? And now he's telling me to kill, well, he can raise him from the dead. So I'm going to, I'm going to do exactly what he says. This, uh, this byproduct of this strong, deep faith is a, uh, Tommy had mentioned that Abraham lived by faith. What, what does that mean? It means my behavior and my actions is shaped by my trust. It's shaped by this belief um, in, uh, in God. And so that changes the way that I work. It changes the works that I do and, and that kind of thing. Okay, very good. For sake of time, uh, we are going to skip down to, and we're kind of, we're kind of talking about this, but question four kind of gets back to some of the statements Ryan made at the beginning of class. I'm going to read uh, 13 down through the end of the chapter. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not fulfilled through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if they become heirs by the law, faith is empty and the promise is nullified. For the law brings wrath. Because where there is no law, there is no transgression either. We kind of talked about at the beginning, like, like knowledge of good and evil suddenly makes me realize that it just exposes when I do wrong. Um, let's see here. Uh, the law brings wrath because there is no where there is no law, there is no transgression either. For this reason, it is by faith, so that it may be grace with the result that the promise may be certain to all descendants, not only those who are under the law, but also to those who have faith, the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Not just the new Jewish nation, right? Many nations. He is our father in the presence of God, whom he believed. The God who makes the dead alive and summons the things that do not yet exist as though they already do. Against hope, Abraham believed in hope, with the result that he became the father of many nations. According to the pronouncement, so will your descendants be. Uh, without 
being weak in faith, he considered his own body as dead because he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief about the promise of God, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. He was fully convinced. I love that term. I don't know what other translations you might have there, but he was fully convinced that what God promised, he was also able to do. So indeed, it was credited to Abraham for us. There's a big, long explanation as to why faith is credited as righteousness. It's because it, <laughs> when, you are, um, when you are fully convinced, it changes who you are. It changes the very core of you that ends up translating into works and behavior that align with the way that God wants you to live. In question number four, I said, Paul makes a profound statement in verse 13. As I reflect on this, I realize often that I attribute faith to the New Testament. Clearly, and through many examples, this is not the case. That raises many questions in my mind. Think about this and be prepared to discuss in class. We've probably got a, just a couple of minutes. But I want to ask you a question. Uh, what, what do you think made the Jews feel better after they had sinned? What was it that I, I did this thing, I feel guilty, how did they get rid of that guilt? Go ahead. I think they felt like they had done some work, like a sacrifice or something, okay. and therefore, I'm good. Right? It was the sacrifice. This action, this ritual that I would engage in, because I've been told that if I do this thing, I'll be clean, or I'll be, I'll be absolved uh, by that. Wouldn't that then become the focus, or couldn't that potentially become the focus of ridding yourself of guilt? I'll give you a really bad analogy. It's a coding analogy, so like maybe five of you in here will get it. Um, but there's this phrase, people will do what you measure, right? I'm a, let's say I'm a, I'm a software manager and I want my guys to produce a really good product, right? So I start measuring things and I say, hey, I'm gonna start measuring lines of code because usually the more that you write means the more that you're thinking about the problem and, and that kind of thing. What do you think will happen when I say, I'm going to start judging you based on the lines of code that you write? More lines. More lines. Enter, 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 enter. Right? Like, I've actually seen that firsthand. And so people will do what you measure. And um, so if you apply that to where does, where does my, uh, where does um, the release from guilt come from under the old law? Well, we know that it comes from a merciful God. What is it, what could it feel like that the, that the actual sin is removed by the performing of the sacrifice? And that's why he says, you worship me and honor me with your lips, but your heart is not with me. And when you sacrifice this thing, it's like you're breaking the neck of a dog. It means nothing to you, right? We often talk about laying your hand on an animal, cutting its throat, that's supposed to evoke an emotion in you, like something innocent had to die because of what I did. And then if I continue down that path and I focus on that law, I forget about the lawgiver. And Jesus points this out, you've forgotten the weightier things of the law, mercy and sacrifice. Um, so I, I think it's natural 
Ryan, to kind of go back to what you're talking. I think it's natural to uh, a natural inclination to satisfy a law or a rule with the least amount of effort. I don't think that's a bad thing until that usurps or undermines the original intent of that rule. My original intent was I want to I want to produce a better product, so I'm going to start measuring this thing. Well, people start circumventing that, and what happens? My original idea, my original vision, is not met. Ryan. It's a little bit like, um, you know, imagine uh, my son wanting to go to uh, Six Flags and I tell him, you know what, if you break the leaves in the backyard, I'll take the Six Flags. Um, that, that is not an even trade. That's not a works transaction. Um, I am seeing him break the yard and I'm crediting to him a Six Flags trade. Um, now, if he's young, he might think, <laughs> um, that, that's not, it's not a workspace thing. It's not like right. you work 40 hours and you collect your paycheck. Um, it's a crediting. It's a, um, you didn't earn it. Right, so right. That's how I see the Old Testament sacrifice. It's easy to mistake that as the means of forgiveness. It might be conditions, but it's not what enables it. It doesn't have the power. I, I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Did I have a, a yeah, Amory, we'll get a microphone to you. That's, uh, yeah, <laughs> great. I get to go to Six Flags every weekend. that statement, baptism is a gift. Really good, I love that. And I think, I think looking back, I, I don't maybe didn't think that at the time, you know, when I was young, uh, but certainly have grown to appreciate that as that gift. It's not, it's not a measured transaction. What I do compared to what I get, uh, that's, it's almost absurd, right? Um, Josh. It's a really good point, and Chris and I were kind of talking before the, the class and this idea of you'll, you'll, you'll be a slave to something, right? Either sin or slave to God unto righteousness. And I don't like, I don't like the idea of, of being a slave. And yet, as you pointed out, we're in a situation where we rely on God for everything. Everything. All sustenance, existence, all of that kind of thing. So when we, when we do what he asks, it is simply meeting an expectation. Um, was that the first or the second? Second? Wonderful. All right. Um, we'll, 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 uh, <laughs> we'll probably cover question number five at the beginning of, of the next time, then we'll dig into chapter uh, five. Thank you so much for your participation.